At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's made an audacious claim They've just claimed something super big, and yet as they've made that claim and you've thought about it, it's, you've realized it's changed your relationship to them. They've, they've said something that's just so high, so incredible, that maybe in some ways it lifts your view of them, your, reputa- your thought of their reputation, your consideration of their character and who they are. That claim all of a sudden makes your heart and life go, oh, it's, it's up. I, I think more... Uh, clearly about this person. I think uh, better about who they are. I I like them a lot more because of this claim. Some claims may cause you to go the other direction, though, and they they say something big, and you're like, that's ridiculous. And so you begin to think less of that person, and and your heart goes down. I, I wonder what happens when we consider the claims that Jesus makes, particularly the claim of who he is. Does does our view of Jesus elevate, or or does it diminish? Is, is our view of Jesus based on who he has claimed to be? Does it grow? Does it impact? Does it change our lives? Or when we consider the claims of Jesus, do we in some way uh, distance ourselves from him? Do we, do we draw back from him because of who he claims to be? Uh, now, we're in the second sermon of a series in Mark's gospel. And we're using uh, an in Mark's gospel this fall because we want to evaluate, we want to understand the claims that Jesus has made. The series is called Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives. In Mark's gospel, Mark's, Mark makes a, a particular emphasis to show us the claim of Jesus as being the king over all kings. And as being king over all kings, that means he has authority over everything. And so we're, we're looking through Mark 3 through 5 over these next several weeks to say, what, what does that mean that Jesus claims to have authority over all things? If he is truly the king, what does that mean for my life? And, and here I would br- draw us close to, to Mark's story this morning, to Jesus' life, because I want us to understand who Jesus claims to be because it will impact our lives. Now, Mark does a great job of, of not holding back or, or not, uh, he, uh, he, he really just plays all his cards right at the very front about who he thinks Jesus is, but he does a good job of laying it out there and saying, this is who I, Jesus think, this is who I think Jesus is, what about you? Who do you think Jesus is? So right at the very beginning of Mark's story, or gospel as he calls it, which means good news, he, he presents Jesus in this way. He says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark is very intentional there in using these titles. He is saying that Jesus is the one sent from God, the the anointed one, the Messiah, who has been sent from God, who in fact is God himself. And as the Messiah sent from God, who is God himself, that means he is the king. He is the divine deliverer who has come to rescue God's people. Now, Now in that claim that Mark makes there about who Jesus is, he lays it out and then he says, let me let me show you the stories. 
Let me tell you the tales. Let me, let me help you see Jesus, and you need to make a decision. Who do you believe Jesus to be? And if you see who he is and you see what he has done, then you have to come to the, the terms of your own life of what does that mean for your life? How does that change who you are? If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if he is the divine deliverer king come to save God's people, that means something very important and something deep for each of our lives. So you can read Mark's gospel, and I love how Mark just kind of sets this up in the first three chapters, and we even encourage you to do that this week. Mark just starts talking about Jesus and what he does. So Jesus begins his ministry. He's called right away after his baptism. The father speaks and says, this is my son, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And he's thrust right into ministry. He goes right off into ministry, and he begins to teach with authority. Mark writes with, with one with immediacy. In fact, he uses that word a lot. He's just saying, like, here's what's happening with Jesus. Immediately this happens, and then immediately that happens. So immediately Jesus starts teaching, and he's got a good news message that he brings. And he, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's, that's really a big summary of Jesus' sermons. The time time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then Jesus begins working. So he he goes and he he heals the sick. Those who are infirm and and weak and laid down with illness, he heals them by his word. Those who are paralyzed and cannot walk, he speaks and the paralyzed person stands up. Those who are blind and cannot see, Jesus speaks and, and they're healed and they see right away. And Jesus begins to teach with authority. He he begins to encounter and deal with the the evil spiritual realm of the demons. And he casts out demons uh, from people. He uses his words. He just speaks and it happens. It's, It's authority over and over and over again where Jesus says and it's so. He speaks and it happens. And even the people around him are are stunned by his authority. They see and they hear Jesus teaching and preaching and acting and doing these miracles and and these wonders, and they are amazed, as Mark says, about him. All of this laying the groundwork of asking the question for us as readers, who is Jesus? Who is he? On account of what he has done, how would we think of him? How would we live towards him? What would you make of him? And I think this is the challenge for us. If Jesus is, as he claimed to be, the divine deliverer king, the one who was sent from God to save God's people and to rule and reign over God's kingdom, I think it's really important that we assess our relationship with him. If he stands as king of kings and lord of lords over all things, how would we relate to him? C.S. Lewis presents it this way. He says, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. And this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. So Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that's the one thing we must not say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. 
Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come to Jesus with any patronizing nonsense about him just being a a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He hasn't intended to. Jesus, in who he is and what he has done, claims to be the king over all kings. He claims to have ultimate authority, his reign above every reign. And so that begs the question of you and I, how will we relate to him in his claim to be king? I want you to just consider your life this morning in two areas, and maybe you can use your two hands to think of it this way. We'll put two things in these hands. But I want to ask you to consider, are your hands closed towards Jesus and his rule and reign? Are your hands closed towards him in, in your life? Or in these, in these two areas that I'll point out, are your hands opened? Are your hands open to Jesus and who he is, ready to, to receive from him and to, to humble yourself to him? Now here, here's the point. Because Jesus claims to be king, because he is He is the king. His reign as king, his his leadership and rulership over all things, it calls for our ultimate allegiance. Jesus' reign as king of kings and lord of lords doesn't allow us to look at Jesus just as a great moral teacher, just as a human philosopher, just as a wise example, just as some spiritual guru. His reign as king of kings and lord of lords calls for And I would even say demands our ultimate allegiance as his people. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and he claimed to be God, and if he did what the Bible says that he did, what the Bible claims he did, in that he lived a perfect life without sin, he healed, he taught, he displayed great authority, and then as a substitute he died on the cross and on the third day was raised to life again, if he has done what the Bible has claimed he has done, And the question is, how should we respond to his reign as the divine deliverer king? The answer to that is with ultimate allegiance. Our hands should be opened in every area of our lives to him as the king, the Lord, and the savior. But here's the problem. We don't want to live with open hands to Jesus. We don't. We don't want a king who has authority over every area of our lives. We we would rather hold those things in our hands tightly. We want to be the king. We want to have ultimate authority in our own lives. We want to be able to dictate how we live, what we do, where we go, how we interact with one another. And so the problem is, many of us claim Jesus as Lord and say that he is the king and yet we don't live under his reign. We, we, we haven't lived with open hands to him in every area of our life. There isn't ultimate allegiance to Jesus. And so here's where our Jesus de- wants to deal with us this morning. And he does it very tactfully, but very directly. I think Jesus here tackles the two issues that we want to cling to most in our lives. Number one is how we practice our spirituality. Or you could call it our religion. Like, we want to do that our own way. And so we hold that with a closed fist. Like, this is, this is the way I'm going to do my spirituality. This is going to be the way I'm going to do my religion. And don't tell me I'm wrong. That's one area. And then the other area is our family loyalty and how we view family and how we view relationships in family and that sort of thing. You touch those two. I mean, that's a recipe for a disaster on a Thanksgiving day if you start messing with religion and family, right? 
And yet that's where Jesus says, let's open our hands. As the King of kings and Lord of lords, he calls for our ultimate allegiance. So I'm going to walk us through this text here that Chris just read a moment ago because that's where Jesus interacts with these things. He's dealing with the with the things that people are saying about him, the false narratives and the false claims that are out there about who he is. And in dealing with those false narratives and those false claims, he's saying, let me just get you to open your hand. I am the king. And I demand ultimate allegiance. I call for ultimate allegiance in your life. So here's where. First of all, he starts dealing with our religious assumptions. Jesus challenges our religious assumptions. The way you approach Jesus might not be the way that you, think, that, that, that you should approach him as king. You may want Jesus on your own terms, and Jesus says, I don't have things going on on my own terms. I, I want you to come to me as, as a subject to someone who's humbled yourself to me. Let me show you here where this works out. Now, Mark does something interesting here with verses 20 to 35. He does it throughout his gospel uh, quite often. It's called sandwiching, literally. It's, it, it's not bread and meat in a sandwich, but he starts one story, and then he gets in a little bit onto that story, and he pauses it, and he moves on to a different story, a different moment in there. And then he comes back to where he originally started. It's kind of bookends on a, a bigger point that Mark is making. Here again, he's dealing with our hearts, and so he starts with this story about family in verse 20, and then he doesn't come back to it again until verse 31. But in the middle there, there's this other group, and so I'll focus in right here with this other group. Verse 22, it's these scribes. These scribes are the religious leaders. They are the, the legal experts of Jesus' day. And they've got a whole lot of religious assumptions about Jesus. I mean, they have just figured him out in their own minds. And it is not a positive thought towards Jesus uh, from that moment. The scribes, they come down from Jerusalem, and here's what they're saying. They're saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. He is uh, working by the prince of demons. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And at the end of verse 30, he says, he has an unclean spirit. And these are just their accusations and their claims against Jesus. He's possessed by Beelzebul, which was their uh, term and, and kind of uh, uh, nickname for Satan in that day. They were like, Jesus is possessed by Satan. He's just running around full of Satan. And, and then they were saying, furthermore, that, that it was by Satan that he was casting out Satan. You know, he's, just like, he's just running with the demons. He's evil. He's wicked. So much so, again, that they would say he he's, has an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed himself. Now, this is, this is the team that does the religious credentialing, if you will. They're the, the committee that goes around. And so where there's a rabbi that would start teaching somewhere in Israel, a new spiritual leader, this team would come from Jerusalem and assess the authenticity and the credibility of their statements and their claims. If these religious teachers were teaching the, the scriptures, if they were teaching the Torah and matching up with that, they'd say, hey, they're great. If they're following our game, if they're lock and step with our religious assumptions and our religious preferences and our practice of spirituality, free reign. Have fun with that. You're credentialed. It's kind of like being ordained, if you will. But if they found somebody who was kind of maybe a little rogue in their minds or in their teaching uh, from what they thought, they'd write them off completely. They have had an encounter, three encounters already with Jesus in Mark's gospel that's gotten them to the point where they're saying, like, this guy is completely nuts. He's demon-possessed. They don't want anything to do with him. It's a smear campaign. And so in those confrontations, they've just decided in their hearts, we're not going to have anything positive to say about Jesus. And so they make these claims. They're ready to just to write him off completely and tell everybody he's 
full of demons, don't have anything to do with him, and Jesus answers them. He, 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 verse 23 says, he called them to him. He says, hey, okay, guys, come on, get up close. I, I know your critique against me. I know the claim that you're making against my claim, but, but let me just ask some questions here. Mark says that he said these things to them in parables. He's like, let's just kind of imagine. Let's, let's dream in story a little bit and, and think just bigger than this. So he begins to ask some questions. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Like logically, it just, it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't make sense. Or, or he, he says, okay, think about this. Okay, you've got a kingdom, a big kingdom, and all of a sudden, the kingdom like turns in on itself and goes to war against itself. It's divided. You think that kingdom is going to stand? No, it's not. Okay, well, let, let me just zoom it in a little bit more closely. Like, think about your house, right? Your household. If your household, like, just all, everybody's just at each other's throat. They're going at one another and, and just destroying each other with their words and actions and all of that. You think that house is going to keep going on? It's going to stand? I mean, the, the implication, the, the answer is obvious. No, not in any case. It's not going to stand up. And so he says in verse 26, If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus' point there is, is obvious. Satan's not fighting himself Satan's trying to keep his household standing. And if you think I'm from Satan and I'm against Satan, that makes no sense at all. But in fact, I'm superior to Satan is what Jesus says. His house is coming to an end. So Jesus says it this way. Think about it. You've got a big bully. And, he, and he's just stealing from everybody in the class. He's just taking from everything. How do you get all your stuff back? What do you got to do to plunder the bully? Well, you can't just run into the house or you'll, you'll have a, a black eye and you'll feel really bad and it just won't go well. You've got to bind him up. You've got to tie up the bully. And Jesus says, that's what I've come to do. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. I love the parable Jesus uses here. Satan's a bully. He's just running around, stealing everybody's stuff, ravaging people. And Jesus says, guess what I've come to do? I'm going to tie him up, bind him down, and then I'm going to plunder his house. I'm going to win. And Jesus here is just expressing his kingdom and his authority. Jesus is the superior one to tie up and bind and plunder Satan. And so in his work in casting out demons and healing and teaching the gospel and, and holding out good news, he is displaying his authority as the king to overthrow Satan's kingdom. But the religious assumption of those scribes in that day was like, nope, that's not how it works. This is not how it goes. And so they had written off Jesus completely. Now, I, I don't think, I don't imagine that most of us here this morning hold that same religious assumption as these scribes do. I, I doubt very much that most of you who came in today were like, yeah, Jesus is full of demons and we should write him off completely. But here's where I do think Jesus wants to challenge us. Because we come to Jesus with a different set of religious assumptions. Basically about how we practice our own spirituality. Our religious assumptions say Jesus, he can be held on our terms. Like I, I, Jesus accommodates to me. He, he defers his life and his, who he is to my own experience and my own benefit and my own good. And so 
I just get Jesus on my terms. And if anything goes against what I feel is right or good from Jesus, then I'm just going to cast him out myself. He's no good for me anymore. Our assumption today is that Jesus can be held on our own terms. And it's something that I would say that we, we think of spirituality as our performance. It's a religious performance, a life of performative individualism. And so what we do is we say, whatever I think is best, whatever I think is right spiritually, whatever, however the path I want to write to God uh, is, I'll write it out and that'll be true. That'll be my own truth, my own experience. And anyone who critiques that or anyone who says it's different or wrong, they're wrong. Like that's just unloving and unkind of them for them to, to speak about my spirituality in the way that I've already defined it. And what we do is we approach Christ not as a king, but we approach him as a convenience to our comforts. We think of Jesus as the one who's just, he's there to give us the great handouts. And so here's how we perform in order to get his handouts. We, we do this in one of two ways. One, we either think of Jesus as the one who we have to earn his handouts from. So it's an earned performance, earned grace, if I can say it that way. So we go, okay, Jesus is for me, and I'm getting the good stuff and enjoying the good life when I read my Bible and pray and I go to church and I help old ladies across the street and I give and I do the nice things. You know, I'm a, I'm a good person. And when I do those things, then Jesus is obligated to me, he serves me, and life is good. And, and when things don't go well, when I don't perform the religious activities, when I don't pray, when I don't read my Bible, when I don't do, when life goes bad, then it's obviously because I haven't been performing right. I haven't been doing the right things. And so we write up this equation. If I do blank, then Jesus will blank. And our lives ride a roller coaster of success and failure. If we're successful and we're disciplined and our performance is good, great. We even get a little superiority complex. Like, hey, I'm better than those people because they're not praying and reading and religiousing the way I am and as good as I am and Jesus owes me. Or if we're doing poor, we, we feel like we hit the bottom and we're depressed and we're ashamed and then we're even angry that God would be mean at us. Just, let me just help you think this through a little bit more practically. How often like, you get up in the morning, maybe you've had those experiences where like, you know what, I need to, to read the Bible today. And so you, you read the Bible. You get up in the morning and you, you spend 10 minutes and you read some scripture. And then you expect your day to go incredible. You're like, I did the work, right? I did the spiritual activity and now the day should go incredible. And how confused do you get when it isn't incredible? Like, didn't I do the right thing in order to get the right thing? That's religious performance. That's a religious assumption that God owes us because we have performed something. So we can run that way, and that not great at all. That's earned grace. Or we can run the cheap grace route. And the cheap grace route really says this. It says, listen, Christianity is all about what you intellectually believe. I affirm some things that are in a book somewhere. And so if the book says that Jesus is the Christ who came and died for me and rose again, yes, that is true, but it doesn't impact how I live at all. I can just believe these things in my head, and there's no transformation, no difference about how I live. And so really what you're looking at God is like, as God is one who, who, because you've intellectually assented to him, and because God forgives sinners and you're a sinner, you just say, like, I can live however I want because... I got, the, I got the fire insurance. I got the get-out-of-hell-free card. And so God just owes me that way. 
I don't, I don't have to be transformed or be made new or live any differently because I agree to the right thing. These are the religious assumptions that we come to today. It's either earned grace or cheap grace. And whether we learn, live in either one of those dynamics, the reality is we're holding our fist closed to who Christ is as king. We still become the, the dictators and the kings and the masters of our own lives and our own spirituality. We are the ones who are in control. And so we see Jesus not as a king to reign over us in love and grace and glory. Instead, Jesus becomes a commodity to be used by us. He's not the Lord to be followed. In fact, we see Jesus, if we live with these religious assumptions, as a servant at our disposal for our positive self-image. So, so here's the deal. While you're not flippantly denying Jesus and who he is as a demon, you're just putting Jesus in a box and relegating him to a diminished place in your life. And Jesus issues a strong warning here for the scribes of his day in verses 28 through 30. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I know many people get concerned when they read that and say, oh, have I committed the uh, unforgivable sin? Have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Am I in a position where I wouldn't be forgiven? What Jesus is talking about here is unbelief, rampant unbelief in the obvious face of what is true. The scribes of his day saw his miracles. They saw his work. There was no questioning or confusing him with the Christ. It was obvious. They had the scriptures, and the scriptures all pointed to Jesus. And yet, as they saw the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, they continued to live in unbelief and hard-heartedness and say, no, he has an unclean spirit. I want nothing to do with him. And that's where this issue is really at hand for us. Jesus is saying to us, if it's obvious to you that he is the king, that he is the Christ, that he is the one who demands and, and should receive ultimate allegiance in our lives, don't hold your fist closed and your hard heart. Don't reject him because that unbelief will land you in hell. Jesus says, open your hands. Open your heart. See him as the king. Bow your knee to him. Submit your life to him. Come to him. But don't let your religious assumptions keep you blind from the reality that Jesus is the King and the Lord and that he calls for ultimate allegiance in our lives. If we are to submit with ultimate allegiance to Jesus in our lives today, it means that we come to him aware that there's no good that we can perform to earn his grace. Jesus is the one who did all the work required to save us and redeem us. But we also come to him as our King and our Lord. We don't cheapen his grace but we instead say, all I have is yours and, and I want to follow you and be transformed by you and live in obedience to you in every way because you are the king. See, Jesus turns religion or spirituality up on its head. We're saved by grace, not by our own works. And then from being saved by grace, we are transformed by God to do great works for his glory. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what are your religious assumptions? Do you, do you claim Jesus as king, but you're trying to keep him in your debt, in your pocket, based on your religious performance or your intellectual assent? Do you hold Jesus, or do you hold your religious assumptions in a closed hand? Or do you open your hand and say, it's by grace, through faith, and it changes everything because Jesus is the king? Okay, that's one area that Jesus presses in on, your religious assumptions and how you practice your spirituality. But let's take the other hand, the family hand, right? This one can get really messy in our minds and our hearts because we don't like our families messed with. Jesus is king and he rules and reigns over all things. So he calls for our ultimate allegiance by reorienting our family loyalty. Now let's, let's go back to the bookends of this text here. The scribes have made a judgment on Jesus, but Jesus' family itself made a judgment on who Jesus was. They, they are very concerned about him and they make a statement that's, that's just outlandish. Go to verse 20. Jesus went home. Okay, so we get a moment where Jesus is at home and you think, okay, he can kick back put the football game on, rest for a little bit, and then get back into ministry. But as he's home, it says the crowd gathered again. Jesus is so popular in his ministry and his healing and teaching that the people are just constantly coming to see him. And so the crowd is there outside his home, like in his home, just making demands on his life all over the place. And it's so big, it's so busy that Mark says that Jesus couldn't even eat. He's just serving, he's ministering, he's caring for others. And, 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 of course, his family hears about this, and they get concerned. Now, now here's the thing. They're not concerned for Jesus' sake necessarily because, like, oh, poor guy. He just can't even get a sandwich in. Like, we got to care for him in that way. They're concerned about their reputation because of what Jesus is doing. This, this is the nature of a traditional culture, an honor-shame culture, where it, you're obligated by your family to do good things so that your family name and reputation stays high and good. And if you go off doing wacko things and ruin the family reputation, you're, like, you're bringing shame on the entire community. Like you're, you're making the name of the family look really, really bad. And so they are concerned, not necessarily for Jesus' well-being, but for the reputation that he, as their brother and son, is bringing on the entire family as a whole. Like, he's not even eating. He's ministering to so many that well, they say he is out of his mind. Absolutely crazy, and that's going to look bad on the rest of us. Like, the carpentry industry in Nazareth is about to go down because Jesus is doing all this ministry and all this work, and it just, who is he? So they went to seize him, is what Mark says. And that word there, seize, it's, it's a strong word, meaning they were going to tie him up. They were going to drag him away. They were, they were going to just put him in a room and like, oh, we don't know that guy. And hopefully rebuild the family reputation. This honor-shame culture, we understand it in terms of like the godfather, right? Never go against the family. Don't shame the family. And yet Jesus, in his work, in his ministry, seems as if the family reputation is about to take a nosedive. So... So that's where we're at. And then we get down to verse 31, and Jesus has been speaking with the scribes, and the family shows up, right? They're there now. Mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Again, the, the picture is that the house is completely full. Jesus is in the middle teaching. It's, there's so many people that nobody can get in. And so the family standing outside says, hey, they tap on the person in front of them. Hey, can you just pass this message up to Jesus? Tell Jesus, 
Mom and brothers are here. Like, just send the message along, get it up to the front. Sure enough, the message gets up to the front. They tell Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And that's a command on Jesus. Basically, the family is saying to Jesus, shut it down now. Come out here. We're going to go away. And like, this is not going to be a thing anymore. Jesus' answer to them is strong. He, he looks around and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Like, who, who would they be? Who, who are they? He's asking this question of the crowd. And then he looks about at those who sat around him, those who are sitting and listening and taking in his teaching. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is just reorienting priority here. Somebody asked me at the first service, wasn't Jesus breaking the fifth commandment in the way he talked about his family? He, he basically, wasn't he dishonoring his mother here? Who is my mother? It's you guys, not them. But I think what Jesus here is doing is actually rightly orienting things. Consider the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? To love the Lord your God above every else, everything else. There is, to have no other gods above the Lord your God. And what was happening in Jesus' culture and time was that family was being, command number five, if you will, was being put ahead of command number one. Honoring father and mother became more important than honoring God. And so what Jesus does here is he just reorients it and he says, no, no, my family, my spiritual family, my my highest priority, those, those who are part of my family, are the ones who have them in the right order, in the right priority, to honor God and have no other gods before him and above him. Family comes there, but loyalty to God is first and foremost above loyalty to family. What about us today? Many of us today would rather do the will of our family over the will of God. We can be so tied to fears about our family's perspective on us or our family's view of our reputation or our family reputations or traditions that we'd rather keep the peace here than follow what God has called us to do. Many of us live with the will of the family standing over competition to the will of God. There's a couple ways I think that this plays out in our lives today that I would just mention. One is, I think, in the practice of baptism. I hear many people at times say, you know, I, I love Jesus, I'm following him, um, but I was baptized as a baby, and I just, I don't see any reason to follow Jesus' command to be, to be baptized after my profession of faith. And yet Jesus instructs his followers to be baptized. It's, it's the idea of, if you will, putting on the Team Jesus jersey. Baptism in the scripture is taught as an event that happens after someone repents and places their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And yet some say, you know, I'm not going to be baptized because I don't, want to, I don't want to offend my family. I was baptized as a baby. I don't want to offend them. But they haven't obeyed and followed Jesus and what he has commanded as a believer. And I understand not giving offense for giving offense sake. But I think in many cases we prioritize what the family thinks over what Jesus commands. We hold a hold closed fist. So my question is, in this instance, it's still the same, does the will of the family compete with the will of God? Maybe this is one area of your life where you need to yield to Jesus' authority over your parents. Maybe another example, I was talking with one of our campus pastors who their church is, uh, their, and their campus is full of families that are like uh, 
middle school, upper elementary, high school, and he's just telling me on the weekends, like, the church just seems to be so weird because all these families are out involved in, in uh, sports and in um, family activities, kids' activities, travel leagues, all this sort of stuff. That he's like, it's really confusing for them as a church. And, and I got to thinking about our campus, and I think we have so many young families that are earlier on in that stage. I thought, here's a moment for me just to maybe say, let's give some discernment down the line. I don't think we're in danger here yet, but, but we need to have some discernment about our family activities over God's activities. Are, are we committing, could we be in danger at some point of committing too much to the kids' sports, the kids' travel leagues, the kids' things that we overlook being committed to the family of God and being a part of the church community? We have all our time and all our money and all our energy in the things of sports and the souls of our kids out there, but missing the commitment of being gathered with the church on Sunday morning, being committed to a life group and being investing in the life of one another together. And, and we just miss those things because we could let our kids' schedules dictate everything. And it could be a moment where we have our family devotion over God's family. Here's the thing. Jesus won't have rivals or be subservient in any other devotion or any other loyalty. It goes far beyond family. Anything that you and I give our hearts to and our loyalty to that usurps or challenges God's will, challenges Jesus' reign, it says something about what we think of Jesus. So here's my point. Let me just zoom out on the bigger issue over all of this. When we're confronted with who Jesus is, what he has done, we have to respond. Our lives have to be impact, impacted. And yet so many of us want to sit on the fence. We want our religious spirituality the way we want it, and we want our loyalties and our priorities the way we want them, and we hold them with a closed fist. And what we really want is we want Jesus to be a gentle, loving, forgiving Savior, just to let us do our thing, but we don't want him to be a king. We don't want him to have the authority over every area of our lives. We want Jesus to supply the blessing of bliss without the challenge of conforming our lives to his will. We want Jesus on our own terms, in our own way. But friends, Jesus won't be ruled by our whims. He is the king. And the king calls us to ultimate allegiance to him. He will have no rivals he, he, he calls us to orient our lives completely around him. And here's how he calls us to do that. It's a sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and turn away from not giving Jesus complete allegiance in your life and positively believe. Turn your life towards Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the king who has come to save his people from their sins and live your life oriented around him as your king from this day forward. I think C.S. Lewis is right in saying that Jesus did not leave us the option of thinking of Jesus just as a merely a good teacher or a religious model or example. Lewis asks, what are we to make of Christ? There's no question of what you can make of him. It's entirely a question of what he intends to make of you. You must accept or reject the story. So friends, this morning, I would invite us and call us to accept the story of Jesus, the King, and surrender your life to him completely. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have come and that you have come as King 
You have shown that everything in heaven and on earth will submit to you. And so, Lord, I thank you just for the grace, Jesus. I thank you for just your kindness to, through your word here to invite us into to submitting our lives to you today, to opening up our closed hands and saying, Lord, all of our life belongs to you. Would you work and, and be gracious to us in, in helping us open our hands? Whether it's our, our religious spirituality and how we practice that or our, our loyalties and what priorities we make in our lives, Lord, help us to open our hands and submit ourselves in every way to you. We ask that you would do this for your glory, for our good, by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.